It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Think of a time when you look directly into your dog's eyes. This gesture, unique to canines, typically results in a feeling of love. Dog cognition scientist Alexander Horowitz says it's because of oxytocin, the same hormone produced in the brain when a parent bonds with their newborn. We pet dogs and we get the surge of oxytocin. So we're getting the feeling they've kind of hitchhiked onto our feeling towards our infants and they've gotten into that niche and they get the oxytocin rush too. In today's show, what we're learning about canine cognition. What do dogs know, understand, and believe? Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. For years, scientists have studied the cognition of animals like primates and dolphins. But what about man's best friend? Turns out the field is growing and two of its experts were on our stage in June. Alexandra Horowitz teaches psychology at Barnard College of Columbia University. She wrote the book, Inside of a Dog, What Dogs See, Smell, and Know. Brian Hare is a professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke University. He co-founded the citizen science company Dognition.com. Hare and Horowitz sit down with Ross Anderson, a senior editor at The Atlantic. Also on stage, furry friends Maggie, Gus, and Porkchop. Here's Anderson. All right. Uh, good morning. Uh, I want to start by getting a sense of kind of how your field, and fields really, because you guys come at this from two disciplines, um, the history of, of those disciplines. So tell us, um, relative to other animals, uh, how well do we know the inside of a dog's mind? Mm. <laughs> well, um, I wrote a book called Inside of a Dog, so I should be the expert on that. But what I would say that we still is a lot we don't know. I mean, the last 20 years have seen a huge rise in dog cognition studies. Both Brian and I do that kind of study where we're looking mm. at what the dog knows or understands. But um, it's really the last 20 years um, in psychological history that we've been narrowing in on the dog. Primates got their time, dolphins we've investigated. So there's still a lot we don't know about what the full perceptual experiences, what the cognitive experience is, but it's changed, it's changed and is changing daily. Brian. So I'm really excited to be on a panel with two dogs. I just have to say that. <laughs> it's very helpful. Um, and it's because we don't have a panel of two experts. We have four experts. So these guys obviously are the real experts at what it is to be like a dog. Um, and and I, 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 think, uh, I think it highlights the challenge. The, the challenge we have is that you know, our job is how can we play games? How can we... Um, uh, measure what's going on inside a dog's mind that's potentially unobservable. Like, I'm pretty sure he's trying to communicate to me. Uh, <laughs> he wants a treat. You guys read that. Um, but it is absolutely the case, as Alexandra said, that uh, 20 years ago, dogs were not uh, at the top of the charts of what people were interested in studying. People thought that domesticated animals were sort of impacted by humans, and we want to understand what wild animals do and how um, uh, wild animals think and behave. Um, but it ends up over the last 20 years because, first of all, dogs have more jobs than ever. Mm -hmm. um, they're very busy people. They're, they're you know, windsurfing or whatever. <laughs> but they're also doing things like finding bombs and helping people with disabilities. Um, and so there's been uh, um, not only uh, intellectual interest in, in how the dog minds work, but a real need to understand how can we uh, better work with dogs and place them in the jobs that they might be best at uh, solving the problems they're going to confront. Um, one of my staff writers wrote a story last year about this new emerging research into the d initial domestication of dogs, uh, which is thought to have occurred between 15 to 25,000 years ago and may have even happened at two separate locations. Um, the kind of standard just-so story of this is that dogs sort of like creep to the edge of campfires looking for scraps um, and then slowly were sort of ingratiated into the human world. That's how I understood it. But, uh, Brian has told me that there's a new and much more gross theory that I'd like him to tell you about. <laughs> so, so the, um, I mean, really the, the story that often people will tell is that humans domesticated dogs, mm -hmm. that dogs are sort of our creation. We created them. In we're our, in control. Yeah, we're in control. We created them in our own image. Um, and, and so 
uh, it is backwards, right? If you spell it backwards, <laughs> it's God. So, so what I would suggest to you is that actually, um, instead, our best evidence is that uh, wolves domesticated themselves, and they were attracted to humans uh, 50 to 25,000 years ago. Something remarkable happened as humans started living at higher density. We, do, we did what we still do today with uh, great alacrity, is produce a lot of garbage. Uh, and if you're a wolf, you have the choice of either going in and foraging off that garbage and scavenging, or you can go get kicked in the face and fail at chasing your quarry that you're competing for against a human super predator that has projectile weapons. Hmm. So I think some wolves made a pretty smart uh, decision, and they started foraging off of uh, human scraps and scavenging, uh, and that set up a, a selective process uh, that led to dog domestication. Um, but the, the funny part, and I think this is what Ross is getting to, is in the scraps are also the story of uh, your dog's attraction to uh, feces. Um, because it ends <laughs> up that, uh, that, that probably human feces play, uh, played a big substantial role in the domestication of wolves because um, think of human feces as like an energy bar for uh, a wolf. Um, it's, it's cooked. It's digested, it doesn't run away, and it, it has more protein than chicken. So, so we think that's one of the core pieces of explaining why we have dogs in our beds. I, uh, um, having taken us down this, uh, this scatological uh, route, I wanna, I wanna bring it back to the, the, all the sweet feelings that we have towards dogs. Um, over the course of, of these many thousands of years, uh, what may have begun as this tra transactional relationship for fecal matter has <laughs> turned into something that is uh, actually, there's a different sort of biological connection between dogs and, uh, they're human companions, I don't want to use the word owners. Um, can you guys tell me about that? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that the other, the behavioral component um, that came along with this attraction to humans was that you know, the dog, hum dogs and humans as species had started to intertwine. And there have been lots of interesting results with that. The way they began to intertwine was probably that the less fearful wolves wound up being the one getting closer to humans, getting that nutrient source, getting some protection, maybe getting to live a little longer into adulthood, getting to mate more. And over generations, what happened is this kind of they selected themselves, or we began selecting them for lack of fearfulness of us, sort of mm. friendliness for, toward us. And now what we have is this uber-friendly species, right, who's very responsive to and sensitive to us and doesn't run away as other predators do, right? They, they see us as a competitive predator, and so they flee. We fight each other. Dogs got into this niche where they were less fearful, more friendly. And then there's this interesting hormonal correlate of this, which we're now seeing, which is that you know, we look at a dog and we have a feeling of great satisfaction and pleasure. And it turns out there's actually a hormone, oxytocin, which I'm sure many of you know about, which is billed as a kind of love hormone, but it's one, something that is produced in the brain when a parent you know, sees and bonds with a newborn. Um, it's produced, I think, to encourage that bonding because otherwise you have a newborn and they're screaming and you don't want to spend all the time that you need to to actually take care of that That first three months is tough. Into adulthood. <laughs> well, the same thing happens with dogs now. We look at dogs, we pet dogs, and we get the surge of oxytocin. So we're getting the feeling they've kind of hitchhiked onto our feeling towards our infants, and they've mm. gotten into that niche. And they get the oxytocin rush, too. Mm. So with that eye contact that they make with us, which is so special among non-human animals, I mean, you don't want to stare in the face of wolves, by the way. There's a little <laughs> advice. Even though you love to gaze in the eyes of dogs, don't do it to a wolf. That's a threat, right? So dogs change from that. And then that's the, that's the kind of material on which this hormone can be produced. I want to ask a little bit about how we might be misinterpreting uh, the behavior of our own dogs. And I'll just give you an example. I don't have a dog now, but I've spent much of my life having a dog. And when, uh, whenever I would come home, I had a boxer. And you'd do the normal dog thing, right? Like run to the door. Boxers do this thing where they kidney bean, you know? Like their whole body sort of bends as they're so excited. They jump up and try to lick your face. 
And I had interpreted this as being like, you know, a, a complete display of affection for me personally okay. from my dog. Yeah. And uh, I'm understanding that, that that might be a partial illusion. <laughs> It's funny because a lot of what my research is, and um, Brian and I are both interested in dogs, we just come at it different, slightly different ways. And mine is largely about like these things we think we know about dogs mm. that can be tested. They may or may not be true. So one of the things people don't want to hear is that their dog is not greeting them with affection at the door. I'm not going to tell you that because I do think that's an affectionate greeting. Mm. That's the reunion of this social group, right? You've yeah. been away and now you're back. Absolutely, that's affection and love and excitement. Mm -hmm. um, it's also probably something else. Um, there's, this, there's this thing that happens and maybe your dog gives you kisses. I'm not sure if that mm. ever happened with your Definitely. kidney bean. Yeah. yeah. And we call it kisses, right? Dog is licking your face. It's affectionate, and, we, and um, some people endure that, and other people don't. But if you do, it feels very affectionate. But I, I tried to explain it by looking to their near relative, um, gray wolves, and looking at what that behavior means among wolves. It's very typical behavior among wolves. When wolves leave the pack and they're hunting, they return to the pack, and they're mobbed by the other wolves who all lick around the face, all excitedly greeting the wolf. And that prompts the hunter to regurgitate some of the food that they've just consumed. <laughs> and that's how the pups get food. Yeah. So the kiss definitely has a kind yeah. of request for whatever you It is a eating. loving gesture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But right. it's, it, it's, yeah. they're hoping for a gift. They're hoping right. for what, a gift. Like, what would happen if you were to just spontaneously vomit? I think they'd would be they super be really fine with that. Like, finally. Absolutely. They would be like, this, this, they finally understood. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about, what about tail wagging? Uh, what's that yeah. about? Yeah. Um, can, I t can I take tails? Go, go take. I, look, I mean, yeah. I love tails. Well, so we know, so it's interesting because the more time you spend with dogs, everyone who has a dog, you're all experts on dogs, right? Because you have a dog and you spend all this time looking at them and observing them in the tail. A happy, loose, yeah, so that's like a, you know, it's, like, it, it's an interesting tail, interested tail wag. <laughs> not super licking your ear, huh? Wrong orifice. Um, not. <laughs> so there are lots of different meanings of tail wags. A real high, loose tail wag is a tail wag of excitement. Um, but I'm really interested in this other component of the dog's universe that we don't think about a lot, which is their olfactory universe, that they're really smelling creatures. And we know that, you know, as owners, we know that because they're always visiting smells and lingering on their walks, and we're like, we're walking, and they're smelling something, and we don't see anything there, right? So I've been very interested in that component of it. And I think the tail wag actually has an olfactory component because there are a lot of glands around the supracaudral region, around the tail, and when they're wagging, they're actually can, can I translate that dispersing. For you? Yes. Exhaust pipe. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. They're dispersing <laughs> sense of themselves. These are kind of signature sense, who they are, information about who they are, maybe mm. about their reproductive status, about what they've eaten, maybe their age, maybe their health. Mm. And so that, and, and they're kind of wafting it at each other as a way of giving information to another dog. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Thanks for listening. Our sister podcast, Aspen Insight, is out with a new episode that dives into Aspen Institute history. When the Institute was founded in the middle of the 20th century, an influential modern art movement took hold. A teacher from Germany's Bauhaus School designed the Institute's Colorado campus. The look still exists today, and Institute Vice President Crystal Logan says it can be surprising. Many people, when they see our campus, they might ask, you know, where are the where are the the logs and the antlers and the you know the mountain rustic feel? And uh, when they see our buildings, it is a very austere, uh, mid-century modern look to our campus. Learn more about this slice of Institute history, as well as the Bauhaus movement in Aspen Insight. The episode, The Bauhaus Roots of Aspen, can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. There's also a link in our show notes. Let's get back to today's show. Here's Ross Anderson. Brian, can you think of, of other dog behaviors that are sort of commonly misunderstood? Well, I think uh, one of the really exciting things in the last 10 years is people have been looking at how people perceive dogs and what are the sort of types of cues that they're 
picking up on when they're judging dogs for everything from how smart they are, um, you know, to whether they experience pain. Mm. Um, and it ends up it's sort of surprising um, what people are using um, or how cute they are. Um, so people, if you show people pictures of dogs and you ask them, just tell me, uh, you know, is this dog in this picture smart or not? Um, and what they don't know is that the, the pictures have been chosen very carefully so the dogs vary by the length of their nose. Mm -hmm. And it ends up that the main thing that determines whether somebody will say a dog is smart or not is really the length of their nose. Mm. Uh, and so many of you are wondering now, well, what would it be? <laughs> what, what kind of nose is, is the smart nose? Um, so people, people actually think, uh, tend to implicitly judge dogs with medium-sized nose. Uh, to be the most intelligent. So if you have an Afghan hound nose that's very long or you know, a French bulldog pug type nose, people just, for some reason, think those dogs are less intelligent. So that's one. Uh, the other one, we did a study uh, in, our, uh, in our research group just trying to understand how people will perceive pain in dogs um, and do different dog breeds uh, uh, experience pain differently. There's absolutely no evidence that any dog experiences pain differently at all. Uh, they have the same exact nervous system, et cetera. Um, but when you ask people, uh, does this breed experience, is, are they extremely sensitive to pain or not, uh, the number one thing that, it, uh, first of all, there's tremendous variance in people's responses. Some people think some breeds experience pain and are very sensitive to pain, other, other breeds do not. And the number one variable that explains whether people think dogs uh, experience pain intensely is how big they are. So large dogs are less sensitive to pain, according to just the general public, and small dogs are much more sensitive to pain. Um, there's no evidence that that's the case. Um, uh, the other one is if you look at how people respond to dogs, and this ties right nicely into Alexandra's work on, on the guilty look, um, there's, a, there's a study mapping out the, the muscles of the dog face. There's a muscle called the AU101 muscle. There's sort of a baseline rate that dogs uh, use this muscle. Uh, and it's what's responsible for this sort of guilty, cute look that's irresistible, that, you know, oh my god, I didn't do it, that look. Um, and when dogs are in shelters, some dogs tend to make that look a lot, and some dogs tend to not make that look, and that explains the rate at which dogs are adopted out. Dogs that make the guilty look at a very high level are adopted out much faster than dogs who don't make that, that cute uh, look. So people are judging dogs uh, using the same psychology that we use to judge each other. Um, and so some of the ways that we are categorizing dogs um, sometimes don't fit with what's really going on in their behavior. Yeah. And I really, I mean, I, that's what interests me so much is that we make these judgments about dogs based on appearance. And of course, breeds were selected for specific appearances, mm -hmm. you know, we, the, partly for function. But when we started doing specific breeding, it was about dogs that looked the way we wanted them to look. And we still have a very strong reaction, visceral reaction to types of dogs and that that affects how we're thinking about them interests me as a scientist because I want to say, oh, we think that dog looks guilty. And then we are imputing all sorts of things to them, like that they knew what was right or wrong in the house and then a week that you know, they're trying to enact revenge on us when we've been gone a long time, right? <laughs> or feel so sorry. And as, as a scientist, I think, well, that's kind of an empirical question. I want to test, in fact, before I say I know that the dog feels guilty or not, whether, whether they do. Alexandra, I was struck by something you said earlier, that the, the dog lives in much more of an olfactory universe than yeah. we do. Yeah. And since we've billed this as the mysterious mind of the dog, yeah. I wondered if you could sort of illuminate for us how the dog's experience moving around in the world is different because it's sort of smell dominated. It, that's what got me really interested. I mean, I got into dogs kind of accidentally like Brian, where we were studying something else in, in cognitive science, and then dogs turned out to be this fascinating model. But the more you look at dogs and the experiments that we set them up, and the more you see oh, actually, they're smelling their way through the world. And they, I think it's fair to call them primarily olfactory. They have hundreds of millions more smell receptors in their nose than we do. And we're really pretty good smellers, actually. Um, they have a second organ for smelling called the Jacobson's or vomeronasal organ above the roof of their mouth, which allows them to detect things we don't smell like hormones, which probably is why they're sensitive to things like um, stress levels, right? They can smell that we're giving off cortisol, and they can detect that. 
So they're living in a world of scent, and I really want to imagine what could that be like. The dogs who are in this room together are in this room with us, to be sure. They can, under, they can see things, they respond to you, but they're also experiencing the room as made up of smells. So those are smells coming in off the sides that if we bring our mind to it, we can start to smell you know, something coming in the breeze from the river. But the dog is noticing that. When they meet each other, they're smelling who the other is. Sometimes you might come in the house, you're wearing a new hat, your dog looks at you, surprised. It's not like they've lost their memory for who you are. But when they smell you, and we all have a smell, even the most clean of us, you know, we have a signature odor, that's when they recognize you. So I think their world is actually a little bit of a parallel universe. Mm. And I'm very interested in trying to um, celebrate that, um, letting them have time to sniff on walks. Because <laughs> that's like, you know, if you pull your dog away from an interesting smell, that's like driving by the Grand Canyon, like, pulling, <laughs> looking toward the interior, looking at your phone, right? Like that's the colorful technicolor world for them yeah. is of the stuff on the sidewalk and the grass. All the smells of the people and the dogs and the animals who have passed is still there on the grass. That's their world. Hmm. Uh, Brian, give me a sense for how, I know you work with law enforcement and military groups who uh, have these very close relationships with very highly skilled dogs, or highly skilled in our world. Obviously, all dogs are highly skilled. Um, how is it challenging for handlers to toggle back and forth between kind of the human perceptual world, whether that's visual or otherwise, and, and the olfactory world? Right, so, so that's exactly right. So while dogs have this incredible olfactory experience that's probably beyond what you or I experience, um, they are very visual creatures as well, as you know. Um, and while their vision is different from ours, um, they still prioritize vision in many contexts. So for instance, if they're searching for something, those of you who've been hunting, or if you've just had your dog playing fetch and they're searching for something, they generally will do a visual scan first. Maybe they see the object and then go pick it up. If they don't see it, then they're gonna rely on the olfactory information. But the other thing dogs will do when they're searching for something, especially if a human's involved, is they'll ask you. They'll say, where is it? <laughs> Did you just tell me? <laughs> like, like, you threw it. <laughs> so, so my old dog growing up would turn around and start barking at me instead of searching, and then I would gesture and he would go orbit in the direction that I'd thrown, the, or I pointed, and, and he'd generally find the thing. But when you're searching for IEDs, and you're walking through a field in Afghanistan or Iraq, you actually want the dog to prioritize olfactory information. You do not want the dog to prioritize visual information or to be using you as the information to then indicate that there's something there. Because there's a really strong bond between uh, handler and dog, but if the dog is trying to make you happy and get the reward and have an interaction with you and they're referring to you too much, then you're in trouble. Uh, and so is the dog. So that's one of the challenges in our research is how do you find the dog who is really excited and has the drive to search um, and wants to prioritize their olfactory, uh, that olfactory information and not rely so much on you in that context. And when you work with service dogs, it's the exact opposite. Hmm. So uh, the, the same dog and on the same cognitive test where a, a military working dog would look unintelligent those same results in a service dog context would be brilliant because that's exactly the dog you're looking for. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about this, and a lot of Brian's research has been about this, is it highlights how sensitive they are to humans. And that's partly why we continue have selected them and continue to select for the dogs who are responsive to us. And that means they're noticing the like, smallest move that you do. You know, you, I'm sure you've noticed your dog not only knows a walk is imminent when the leash comes out or when you get up from your chair, but like some series of steps before that. It's almost like when you decide to have a walk, your dog's on it, right? They're there. And that could be because they've actually been telling, asking you for a walk for a while and you finally got onto it. But most, more often it's that they are reading you. They are, I consider them kind of anthropologists in the room with us. They're watching us and noticing the subtle differences and that's how they learn what's going to happen next, because they live in a human world. So you don't want to have that with a working dog who's searching for narcotics, who's searching for explosives, because they, you want them to just be dogness and go and smell. 
Right. I am pretty sure Gus is watching this hand. <laughs> or something. And whether it goes to that, that pocket. That one in that pocket, absolutely. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, I, Brian, I was struck by something you said. Uh, I, I, I guess it's, it's obvious from the story you told about throwing the ball for your childhood dog that they, they remember um, the immediate past. You know, they remember that you threw the ball, for instance, even if they don't see the ball in the landscape, they're hunting for it. Um, what about sort of deeper episodic memories? Like, could we, for those of you that maybe have rescue dogs, is it possible that they like remember when the kind of the day that they were rescued by their human companion? So uh, I'm a boring scientist, which means when I answer a question <laughs> like that, uh, I first put on my science hat and I think about what's the empirical paper that might address that. I can take yeah. the hat off and just tell you my personal opinion. Let's go. Which for is, that. Of course, they remember. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, but now I'm up here because I'm a scientist, so I'm gonna put that hat on and tell you. Okay, what's the paper that I can touch? And there is a beautiful study looking at, um, not you, Gus, um, looking at other dogs. Uh, and um, mother and um, puppies were separated uh, for two years, and then they were brought back together. And the question was, could the puppies use either olfactory information or visual information to identify their mother, and actually even their siblings as well? The answer was the puppies who were reunited with their mother, um, they could identify her based on what she looked like two years later and on uh, olfactory information. The interesting thing was that they forgot their siblings, <laughs> Understandable, unless <laughs> unless they had been raised with another sibling, then they could mm -hmm. recognize the other siblings. So, so do they have long-term memory where they can remember um, and encode information for years at a time? I mean, many of you have, have observations where you're like, of course they can, and there is experimental evidence to suggest that's the case. Hmm. Um, that involves sort of remembering the identity of another dog. Uh, or, or a person, let's say, that they encounter after. Like I know when I go to my friend's house, even after some years, and you, the dog looks at you know, it's it's giving me the greeting. Whereas maybe the first time I met them, they you know we're sort of standoffish or nervous mm -hmm. for some reason. Um, what about sort of deeper interpretive acts by the dog? Like the, there's this technical term, the theory of mind. Um, tell me about the dog's theory of mind. What do we know about what they can intuit from other dogs, from people? Like mm -hmm. for instance, how does a dog know when another dog wants to play? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, theory of mind is what got me into studying dogs. And it, theory of mind is just this interesting thing that humans have, and we always wonder about non-humans, where we're thinking about what other people know or understand. So we're basically just putting our own brains into the mind of another and realizing you have a different perspective, right? So that's something children learn. They learn it at maybe three years of age or so. And the question is, do non-human animals do that? And it's tricky to set up a design with a non-language speaking animal to say, like, do you know what this other animal's perspective is? And that's, that's a challenge. So I looked at dogs in play because I know that when children play is when they start thinking about other minds. Like they can role play, now I'm, you know, a child can say, now I'm mommy. And they're sort of taking the point of view of someone else and imagining what it's like to be that other person. Um, so I looked at dogs playing, which is probably the greatest gig there is. I mean, that was my graduate school work, was like spending time on the beach in La Jolla, like videotaping dogs. The less romantic part, I mean, you guys have got a degree too for that, right? So yeah. the less romantic part is that then I went back and watched the video frame by frame hmm. and would code exactly what was happening. And what I was looking at were these play signals, communicative gestures that dogs do when they want to play. So play is full of just everything in the dog's toolbox. That, that's aggressive actions like biting and tackling hmm. and sometimes mounting sexual actions. Um, and you can't just use them out of hand, right? You have to do something before you hit someone, saying like, we're gonna play, let's play, you agree on that, then you can hit them in the head. But if I just like hit you, that's not fun. That's not play for Ross, it's like just play for me. Um, <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> so dogs are the same way. They I have, thought this was going well. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they have a play bow. You all probably know the play down, the four limbs down, the rump up in the air, and the tail wagging, lots of other play signals. I wanted to know if they did those um, with the other dog in mind, or if they just are doing those in all directions and then seeing what happens. And it turns out they really are thinking about the attention of the other dogs. You know, if I do a play bow um, before I hit in the head, because mm. I'm, I'm a nice human, I, yeah. I wait to see that you've seen it, right? Yeah. I don't just go behind you, do a, a, a bow, and then hit you. Yeah. 
And that's what dogs do too. They go around to the front to the, get the attention of the other dog before signaling, before playing. And if they don't have the other dog's attention, if they're playing with someone else, they run in and try to get attention. Hi, over here, play bell. Yeah. And then they start playing. So that to me is a kind of, kind of marker of a theory of mind where they're thinking about what another dog can understand before they have a social interaction, which is pretty clever. Yeah. Um, I know that both of you are dog owners, uh, or dog companions, okay. and I wanted to ask you uh, how your research has sort of, what has it illuminated for you um, as to your own dogs and their behaviors around the house? What have you learned? So, um, I, have, I have two dogs. Uh, I have uh, a dog who's um, probably around the age of Gus here, and I think uh, studying psychology and cognition in dogs has sort of helped me understand that just like uh, in humans, there's a life history. You start young and you, your cognition develops and then you sort of have your you know, full, wonderful uh, adult life and then uh, you can have cognitive decline. Uh, and I have an older dog and my dog, um, I wouldn't have really thought about it. I certainly didn't think about it with my childhood dog um, and I really, like, you know, I can get upset when I think about the things I should have done for my dog as he was older as a child, my childhood dog, that I certainly do for my dog now, now that I know that, you know, he's 11 years old, he doesn't understand the world the way that he used to, um, he's not remembering things the way that he used to, he's not going to be able to make the inferences he used to be able to make. Um, and so that's really helpful too. The other thing is just knowing that uh, young dogs, like young children, they don't understand everything. And so a lot of uh, the reason that dogs are returned to shelters, a lot of the time when, when the human dog bond doesn't work, it's because you know, some puppy is showing a, a problem behavior. Um, you know, often I think a lot of these problems are gonna be things where people don't realize what the dog doesn't understand yet mm -hmm. or what's yet to develop. Um, and so that's always helpful. You know, uh, we, we're involved in raising young dogs right now and that's been helpful <laughs> to keep in mind as you have puppies around you. So I think that's, that's the helpful uh, lesson probably. I, I mean, my work also, I, I, I bring it home, right? Like my dogs, Finnegan and Upton, who I live with, they're just, poor dogs are under constant scrutiny. I'm just always <laughs> looking at them. You get a lot of hypotheses based on just observing behavior all the time, full time, and I'm, I'm always staring at them. One of the things that I started thinking about with olfaction is how can I increase just the olfactory world of this dog, because I know that since we're in a visual world and we don't emphasize it, they'll just go along with what we do. But I, you know, I brought one of my dogs to nose work classes. I don't know if anybody does scent games around here, which are basically like the training for a working dog. I know. <laughs> um, and where they just try to find things by smell. Dogs are great at this, and they love it. They start shaking with excitement to go, and any, you could do this at home, just like hide, hide a little treat somewhere in the house and get them to go find it. First it's a simple game, and then they, when they get the game, they realize they can do this, and it's this, they won't just find everything in your house and upturn it. They'll know that there's a time when you can play this game. So I really want to indulge that, and I watch my dogs and see how can I let them sniff more? Yeah. You know, how can I give them something to do when they're alone at home all day because they're so social? Mm -hmm. What can I do to enrich their lives? Um, and so I'm always trying things out with them because they're my available guys. Yeah. Um, and they're, you know, and, and, that, and, the, and the bond that mm -hmm. I have with them, the reality of that, I mean, that's one of the things we really probe as scientists is, is the makeup of that bond um, and how we can improve it. Um, I suspect you all might have some questions, uh, but before, before I uh, turn to you, I want to ask one more question. Um, uh, my wife is in the audience today, and I, I won't embarrass her by pointing her out, but... Um, <laughs> She's the nervous one. Me and my son and my daughter are, are kind of part of, like, have unionized against her uh -oh. to try to convince her to get a dog. Um, <laughs> And so I, I was hoping that uh, you're bringing you could... out the gun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Now that I have you. Yeah. Here, yeah. Yeah. Um, That's why I said she's nervous. I was hoping that you could tell me, sort of, you know, we talked about uh, self-domestication of dogs earlier. That dogs sort of wormed their way into our lives, and maybe you could tell me on a macro level, like at for, as a species, but also as individuals, what dogs do for us. Mm. I mean, my feeling is that the thing that dogs are doing for us as a species and as individuals is that they really increase uh, empathy. You know, yeah. they, they are 
they are so giving to us, right? They're not judgmental. They're always happy to see us in whatever funky mood we're in. They give us all this love, and it, it, but it does allow us, it, their privilege of their company kind of obliges us to try to see the perspective of someone else and create a good life for that dog and for others, right? And it's a way to increase empathy for other people. It's a way to increase empathy for other non-human animals who aren't as charismatic, but we sort of have a responsibility for as a species. So I think that's a great ambassador animal to have in your house. Yeah. Certainly, um, there is uh, evidence that suggests that uh, Folks who have dogs uh, tend to exercise more, which is mm -hmm. one of the most important covariates of explaining um, uh, longevity uh, in life. Um, I, I certainly am excited about new data uh, suggesting that veterans with PTSD are uh, aided tremendously uh, when they have a companion animal. Uh, because of the oxytocin uh, loop that forms, it, it actually uh, is antagonistic against cortisol and um, uh, it also is, it is heavily involved with serotonin and the serotonin system. Um, and so we know that uh, it's having a good impact on folks in that way. And then when it comes to children, mm. um, uh, just to <laughs> echo, echo uh, what Alexandra was saying, with my own five and seven-year-old and our two dogs, um, it is wonderful to have such a fun responsibility of feeding that, those dogs every <laughs> night. Yep. And they have to think about someone else that they love yeah. uh, that you can really needle them because it's like, you know, come on, you got to feed the dog and allow them to model what it's like to be someone else. So window into not just the mind of other animals, but the window into just others hmm. for children. And um, it's why... Um, you know, I would not raise children without a dog. Uh, of course Ross. not. Who would? <laughs> um, I'm, so, I'm so dead when I meet your wife, but anyway. Uh, um, <laughs> all right. Uh, we'll take questions from anyone except my wife. Um, uh, let's go right here. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to see if I can get through this question. I lost my 12-year-old Portuguese water dog last week. Oh. But just, could you just say a word about such the shortness of their lives, mortality? And then I, I gather from, the, from books that I've read, um, they live in a series of now, in the moment. Um, but do they sense their own deaths? Thank That's you. That's such an interesting question, and not one that I think science has addressed head on, right? First of all, I'm so sorry, and we all know this feeling, and it's really unfair. It's one of the things, if I could change, if we were gonna specifically breed dogs, to, for things that I think are relevant in our life now, it would be like longer lives, right? Yeah. Um, so, and I knew I needed to have another dog, you know, another pres dog presence. I, they, I think they do live, we don't know exactly what their memory is of their life. Are they sitting around thinking about their past life? We know that they can remember things, but we don't know. And again, and also with anticipation to future, we don't know how they think about the future. I think because aging dogs do cognitively decline, because physically they're limited, they lose a lot of sensory, I mean, they mirror in a high speed kind of our own experience in that way, there might be some sense in which they see where they're going, but they don't have, what I do not think they have are the hangups about mortality that we do, right? We are living in kind of apprehension as a society about death, and that doesn't appear to be something that we have handed to dogs, right? So, um, unfortunately, something we just have to take on ourselves. Hi there. I live in New York City, and my kids did unionize, and we have our <laughs> first dog, and I am, I am a first-time dog owner as a grown-up, and we have a one-and-a-half-year-old Shishon. And so my question is, my children have now convinced me we need another dog. <laughs> and that our dog is lonely in New York City. So what can you tell us about that? So, we both have two dogs, yeah, by the way. We, we, we both have two dogs. Um, I will, I, I'm, I'm going to give you ammo just in case you want to play devil's advocate with them. Um, you know, I personally have no problem having two dogs. I have two dogs myself. But uh, I, and Alexandra will be interested to see what you think, but um, you might disagree with me. But, but my read of the literature is that um, dogs that are socialized by humans, so taken from mom around eight, nine weeks, they bond with humans, imprint to humans. The thing that they want more than anything else is you. 
and they're lonely because they want you. Um, and it is a mixed result bringing another dog into the family. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it's not really going to be helpful for them to be happier. What they really want is more time with you, uh, they, you know, just like you want more time with them. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, so it does, the life history of your dog matters here. And also, how does your dog respond to other dogs? I mean, some dogs um, could leave you and go play with another dog all day, and maybe that dog does want a social companion or would benefit from a social companion, right? Because they're social. But the social group includes not just dogs, it's people. So what they need is stimulation from social others. And you, knowing your dog, will know best whether that's people or whether that's dogs. And it's great to have two dogs. If it winds up, it's great to have two It can be great. All right, I want to go further back in the room here. Uh, how about this gentleman right there in the, in the light blue shirt? Thank you, and thanks to the, to the last question. I'm on my third pair of Dalmatians, and mm -hmm. I've staggered them in their ages, specifically so when I go through the grief issue with having to put them, one of them yeah. down. There's a, and, and they like that, too, at different ages, being together. But my question is puppy mills and um, uh, kill shelters, what Give some words on what we can do to change this perception and, and, and improve the situation, because it's just horrible. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I really, I'm so fascinated by what's happened with dogs in our society where we um, have overbred dogs and there are too many dogs for people. Um, something has to give, and I'm not sure that I have the solution. If I had the solution, I would be doing that solution right now. But what I think the thing is, and we might need to kind of Think about the breeds that we're creating. Are they ones that are best suited to our environment? We really need dogs who can live well with people being left alone, right? Maybe fewer dogs, unless you're doing a hunting or working task, who had been historically bred to do those tasks, because those are dogs who wind up having what we call misbehavior at homes, um, and therefore a return to then a shelter, a return to the breeder. So at some level, I think we need to kind of decommodify dogs and encourage um, a kind of responsible, societally responsible ownership where I, I would love, you know, my pipe dream is that people really know what they're getting into with a dog before getting a dog. It's, even though we don't want people to go to a shelter and not be able to get a dog, I want them to come out having an idea of how complex and rewarding that relationship is so that it's not something you can do this afternoon on a whim because you have 17 years with that dog if you're lucky, right? Um, and also they can't, in, if dogs are decommodified, there's less value in breeding thousands of them a year. Um, if we don't value that as a society, then that will disappear. Hey everyone, so I have a rescue dog. She's 14, I've had her since she was a month old. Still going pretty strong, Maxie. Do dogs have dreams or nightmares? Mm. I feel like I see my pup <laughs> really happy sometimes and sometimes gets a little angry with sleeping. So I'm wondering if you've done any studies or have heard of studies in that space. You got it. You okay, got it. You're them. gonna give that one to me. Okay. <laughs> you're so generous. Um, no, the reason I'm teasing her is because that's one of those where, as a scientist, um, the way we have to operate is if there's something like dogs dreaming, uh, then we have to come up with a way that we can measure something that allows us to falsify a hypothesis. That we're in the business of actually proving ourselves wrong. It's a lot of fun, let me tell you. Um, you have this great idea you're super excited about, and you spend the next 10 years trying to prove yourself wrong. Um, and the, because then at the end of the time, you know, oh, well, maybe it is true. Maybe, maybe what I thought was true. So when it comes to dog dreaming, we can do things like measure their brain activation while they're asleep, and you can see brain activation that might mirror human brain activation while we're sleeping. Um, but that still doesn't tell us that much about what they're actually experiencing in terms of dreaming. Do they have a dream like they have a video in their head like we do? But what I would say is there is some nice data, not just with dogs, but with lots of different animals where, and it's kind of remarkable, is when you train an animal to do something on, say, day one, and then you test them an hour later, let's say, or alternatively, you train them on day one, but then you let them get a good night's sleep and then you test them the next day, it ends up that they perform much better after they have that night of sleep. And the just same- Just like humans. Just like humans, that's right. So, so that would suggest that whether they're, you know, imagining the nightmare of the television show you guys watch together, uh, you know, I don't know. But, but the activation that happens at night does help them consolidate memories, does help them learn new things. 
Um, and so sleep is just as important for dogs as it is for people. One of the hard things about eight, as dogs get older is it's harder for them to sleep. Um, and of course, they don't sleep the same way that we do. Um, and so uh, that's you know, one of the challenges. Great question. Hi, I have a question. I've had rescue dogs for the past 20, 30 years, and they've always been middle-aged dogs that mm. I've adopted from shelters or from rescue groups. And I found it extremely rewarding to see a transition, you know, mm -hmm. to see the transition from being a rescue dog who's been in the shelter to being a loved home dog. Mm -hmm. But I know a lot of people still want to get puppies only. And do you see, is there a benefit of one versus the other? I, I've adopted both. I've okay, adopted a puppy yeah. and a, and a middle-aged dog. And I, it, um, what I think is nice about doing both is that your expectations about the kind of animal who you're introducing to your family has to change um, a lot. When you're, when you're talking about a dog who's been living for four or five years before you meet them, they have a life. And you really have to, as you know, you have to um, try to imagine it and accommodate it and deal with fears that are already built in, cooked in, and you don't know what their experiences are and they can't tell you except for by demonstrating. Um, so that's different than the puppy who you really kind of get to mold from early on, um, but who might not have had a lot of socialization with other dogs, and you're sort of responsible for doing that. So it's, I don't know that there's a benefit. I mean, I love both stages of life. I think that, of course, people are going to want puppies, um, because that's an amazing process to see, the rapid development of a little creature into, quickly into you know, a child, an adult. Um, but the value of, see, of a dog who um, you don't have to house train, <laughs> you, can't, you can't downplay that. <laughs> okay, um, in the white hat. Thank you so much for such a great panel. Um, okay, two quick questions. You touched on the guilty look, so can you speak yeah. about emotion in animals? Do they yeah. feel guilt and jealousy and all of those complex human emotions? And secondly, punishment. And right. How do you think about punishment? How do they process it? and so on. Yeah, so that's, I love how you call that a quick question because it's yeah. a huge field of emotions and a really hoary, difficult question. You know, what, again, it's about this internal experience of a, of a non-human animal. We don't exactly know. With the guilt, with some, we certainly know that animals have in their brains absolutely the correlate parts of the brains that we have that are active during emotional experience, right? And it's adaptive to have fear, anger, Pleasure, right? That's what draws you to or away stimuli. So, yes, you know, dogs experience those emotions. The ones that we, that tend to be called in psychology secondary emotions, which are a little more complicated, are up in the air to me. We don't, I don't think we have a good answer. I couldn't say yay or nay. With guilty look, I was really interested in does the guilty look mean that the dog feels guilty? You know, and I set up a little situation where I had owners. Um, forbid them to eat a piece of food and then leave the room, and then the dog either ate it or didn't. And if they had eaten it, the owners were supposed to scold them, and if they hadn't eaten it, they were supposed to just greet them. And what I saw was I didn't see more guilty look when the, the dog was guilty. <laughs> so it did, what I saw was more guilty look when the, when the owners started to get angry. Hmm. You know, even if it's these very mild um, scoldings. To me, that means that look is, is still an emotional expression, not necessarily an expression of an internalization of the rules of the house and knowing that I violated a real rule. <laughs> and it's not necessarily that. I mean, we don't often have a guilty look, right? Instead, it's an expression of appeasement. I'm concerned that you look angry, and I want to put on this really cute look. <laughs> and actually, it's a really good look. So it's emotional expression, but we, it might not always be the one that we're quick to map onto it. So I feel like that's an active field of study, same with jealousy. Um, and as a result, for, you know, quickly for the punishment, I'll let Brian take that, but the, I think that as a result, mm -hmm. since dogs are not organizing you know, what you're supposed to and not supposed to do the way we do punishment, well, we know through learning theory, it's not, a, it's not the best, even positive or negative punishment is not the best response, the quickest way to learn. I mean, you can do it, but it's not the quickest way to learn. And it also doesn't suit what's happened. You know, if your dog doesn't know that they've done something, if they you know, got in the trash three hours ago, and you come in, there's trash all over the house, and you're angry, and then you punish them, you are punishing them literally for your arrival and discovery of the trash. And they're like, oh god, <laughs> I should never let that happen again. But they're not remembering, I did that act three hours ago, and now I'm getting punished for it. 
So I would lay off it for stuff like that. So I'll just, I'll be quick and, and just uh, riff off what Alexandra said. And when we're training dogs, whether it's for helping people with disabilities or pets or uh, military working dogs, often what people are using is their own folk psychological notion of human behavior and applying that to dogs. And a lot of times that really works. And part of it is because their social genius is what makes them so remarkable and, and successful as a species. But they don't have human cognition. They have dog cognition. And um, one of the things we've been revealing is different ways that, you know, if you treat them like you would treat a human, you won't succeed at, at training them. So, so punishment, for instance, uh, we could have a debate about when and where punishment might work, but I can assure you that it won't be the same story that it will be for our species. All right, we've got time for one more. I have an 11-year-old, soon-to-be 12-year-old dog, and we also brought in a second dog for the first time. <laughs> who's a puppy, and they're really cute together. But what kind of things do you do that are, that's different? Well, I think the main thing is, uh, the main thing I was thinking about when I said that is a lot of people uh, are attributing, um, you know, that you're frustrated with your dog, that your dog's doing behaviors that it knows better or it shouldn't do, or, you know, and it's somehow disobeying you. Um, you know, my older dog, if I say sit, stay, um, you know, and he wanders off, I'm not like, oh, you jerk, you know, you should not. It's like, no, he literally forgot. His working memory is going. And, you know, what he could have waited 90 seconds to do, now maybe 10? I mean, you know, so, so there, there, there are real... Um, uh, limitations as dogs get older and they do change and uh, veterinary science is not there most veterinarians do not study cognition uh, it's as a science it's not um, normally what um, people there's only 50 vets uh, that are boarded in behavior in the United States um, so most veterinarians are, even though the number one and two problems, I, I have a vet who is my postdoc and she was always like, it's incredible, we get all this training and the number one and two things we hear about are skin conditions and behavioral problems, neither of which we get much training for. Um, and so, so uh, um, you know, uh, how we get veterinarians you know, on board and to understand cognition as well uh, is another question as well. Because for instance, there are no diagnostic tools that veterinary scientists use uh, to, to diagnose uh, cognitive decline in your pet dog. If you took your dog to the vet today and said, is my dog experiencing cognitive decline? They'd say, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. Wonderful. <laughs> well, um, I want to thank Alexandra and Brian and our dog panelists. Thank you, Gus. Thank you, Maggie. Good night. Brian Hare is a core member of the Center for Cognitive Neuroscience at Duke. He co-authored the bestseller, The Genius of Dogs. Alexandra Horowitz's research and writing aims to answer the question of what it's like to be a dog. She leads the Horowitz Dog Cognition Lab at Barnard College. Ross Anderson is a senior editor at The Atlantic. He oversees the science, technology, and health sections of the magazine. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show is produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Keelene Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jonathan Melgard, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.